Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Now, at this stage, we're all quite familiar with the circular way that nature works. For example, if we think of the water cycle, we know there's evaporation, convection, precipitation, collection, and so on. And, and it goes on in this cycle. But there is, even to this day, aspects of cycles in the world that we're only beginning to understand. And in some cases, finding out they exist at all. My next guest is one researcher who's looking at the phenomenon known as underwater avalanches or turbidity currents and the complex relationship they have with our deep oceans. It's a fascinating subject. His name is Peter Tolling and he's Professor of Submarine Geohazards in the Department of Earth Sciences and Department of Geography at the University of Durham. Welcome to the programme, um, Peter. This is so cool. I, I had no idea these things existed. What exactly are turbidity currents? Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for everyone's time. I, I guess these are underwater avalanches of sand and mud. So they connect rivers from river mouths into the deep sea. Uh, and these underwater avalanches, these turbidity currents, are, are huge. They can go for over a thousand kilometers at speeds of five to eight meters per second uh, and rip up huge amounts of the seabed. That they're far bigger than any other avalanche on our planet. Thousands of kilometers at eight meters a second. Yeah, we measured one off the mouth of the Congo River in 2020 and it accelerated from five meters per second to eight meters per second as it traveled for 1,100 kilometers to five kilometers water depth. And it was still going at eight meters per second at the end. We don't know how far it really got. So uh, at what point d does something like this start? W what is the catalyst for this underwater avalanche? It's a really good question. We found them very difficult to measure in action, partly because they rip up our sensors. So we've only timed a few of them. But this particular event occurred about a week, 10 days after a 50-year flood of the Congo River. So we think the river brings a lot of sand and mud to the river mouth, and it waits there for a week or more, surprisingly, and then it collapses and it sends this avalanche into the deep sea. Um, earthquakes can trigger them in other places. I'm sort of thinking of one of those coin shelves that move in um, in uh, fun fairs, where you put keep putting the coins in and eventually you get payback if, you, if you're lucky. Perfect, yeah. You keep adding the sediment in the river mouth until it's kind of a quivering mass that's on the verge of failing, thinks about it for a while, and then something small, maybe a low tide, a spring tide, and the gas bubbles and the sediment that expand tips it over the edge, and off it starts. And if it goes quick enough, it gets bigger. So it's not like a river on land. These underwater avalanches, if they pick up more material sand from the seabed, they get denser and faster, so they go even quicker, and they erode even more. There's this feedback where it just ignites and grows. So they're quite different to rivers at times. I've always thought of underwater as being a very calm and quiet place, but it sounds like the, the seabed is being ripped up by these sort of things. Yeah, it's spot on. We Until 1929, we also thought, the scientists working on the ocean floor, it's a tranquil and quiet place. But there was one of these avalanches in 1929 that broke every single one of the telegraph cables going across the North Atlantic. And those cables and the timing of their breaks told us that this flow went at 20 metres per second. So that really changed our view of the deep sea. These flows don't happen very often, but when they happen, they're incredibly powerful. And big. Wow. H how, how tall are these avalanches? The, the smaller ones that we've successfully uh, got our instruments back from are maybe 100 metres thick. But the event that happened in, in the Congo River mouth in 2020 was probably a fair bit thicker. 
So they could easily be over 100 metres thick. So 100 metres high, travelling at up to 20 metres a second for over 1,000 kilometres. That is an absolute... I mean, it's a it's an underwater avalanche. It's an absolute tsunami. I mean, it, it, that there's nothing like that on the surface of the Earth, right? There's nothing that comes close to that. That's correct. So a snow avalanche, the big ones, usually go for one or two kilometres. Uh, and these underwater ones go for a thousand kilometres. The, the speeds of snow avalanches are a bit quicker, but the submarine ones are still pretty fast at 20 metres per second. But this event off the river Congo, it ripped up about three cubic kilometres of sediment from the seabed. And that's the same amount of sand and mud that every river in the world added together for a whole year would send to the oceans. And this flow moved about the same amount down one submarine canyon in just a few hours. That is unbelievable. I, I mean, I, I've been doing this program for 12 years. It's rare that I hear something that I completely missed entirely. And underwater avalanches is one of them. So how do you, I mean, how do you model something like that? Because presumably if you try and put sensors into what is essentially an enormous 100, 100 meter tall storm that goes on for a thousand kilometers. Like you're never going to be able to, to measure that with sensors. Is it something you do from satellites or, or what do you do? Again, a really good question. Until maybe 10 years ago, we basically had only ever measured these things, inverted commas, from the cable breaks. They're underwater cables that carry data. When they break, we knew a flow happened, but that's all we knew. But now we have. Are those, are those, were those cables put in place to, to measure, or they were? That was just. A, a, I mean, a four, a, a plus to a negative. No, they're, they're telecommunications cables. Right. So ninety nine percent of global data, financial markets, mobile phone, everything goes through these submarine cable networks. Um, so when they break, it's a really big deal. Um, they're they're really important. So so that was before, but you're you're implying that there was some way of measuring these avalanches that's different now. Yeah, so a group of us have managed to do this in the last 10 years or so. Uh, we've put moorings, so things with anchors, heavy weights on the seabed, and they've managed to capture the small to medium flows. But now we have seismometers, things that measure ground shaking. We've found that if we put one of those just outside the underwater canyon, it can still measure the flow. And obviously that's better because anything in the flow, as you say, when the flow gets too big, just gets flushed and lost into the deep sea. Hmm. So for the Congo event, we had 11 moorings out there and they were all broken so they floated to the surface and they were busily kind of floating and drifting around the atlantic um sending us our, their positions to us but we didn't know how to get them back so one of the backstories is we spent several months chartering ships to get them back but these seismometers now should be a lot easier how do you know they obviously have some sort of gps and signaling system that's how you know where they are yeah and that gps system via iridium satellite only transmits for three months so we were listening to their position, knowing there was a countdown until these things ran out. My French colleagues went out to, to Dakar to try and collect one of them. They got a ship, but they arrived there one day too late. It just stopped transmitting. So we knew we were against the clock. Really interesting. I um, This is a bit of a name drop sort of thing, but I, I was in the, the northern coast of French Guiana um, helping a research team put um, trackers on these leatherback turtles. And you'd basically sort of, um, sand their shell a bit and use some epoxy glue and stick on one of these sensors and uh, they realised they'd only get a very short amount of time with these before the sensors fell off because they just don't last and it, it seemed to me crazy that in 2020 uh, at the time it was that we couldn't um, get sensors that could communicate to us from deep in the ocean. It sounds like that is still the case. We don't have, you couldn't get a, a sensor that would stick with the sediment and, and travel along the seaboard 
uh, and and know where it is that that that's just impossible with the level of churn and the depth and the the the, the amount of water um it has to get through we just don't have that sort of technology yet no it's bang on we we've got a project at the moment where our seabed sensors will record data process it on a chip so the data amount is smaller and then send a float up to the surface ah uh, and trigger it that's and then very cool data and that there are ocean floats that do this for how the currents in the ocean work and you're right that's the future less ships as well less carbon on their fuel so um talk to me about what this means for biodiversity at the bottom um you know these sort of scrubbing events what do they do to life down at the bottom of our oceans and what does it do to to life above the the water? Like what what sort of I mean these are enormous events. What do they do to the circle of life, so to speak? Well, again, spot on. The the events themselves. If you're at the bottom of the canyon, it's a bad day because they can rip up up to thirty meters of sediment from the bottom of the canyon. So if you're dwelling on the bottom of the canyon, that's bad. But on the flip side, they bring in organic carbon. So the the basic food stuff that underpins all marine, almost all marine life. And they bring huge amounts of that and spread it across the seabed. So it's a bit like feast and famine. And it's whether the organisms can use that, that organic carbon that's coming from land that these flows supp uh, supply. Um, but they're huge. They brought as much organic carbon into the deep sea as all the rivers in a year do. And they put it down one canyon. So it's kind of boom or bust. They're, they're flip sides, good things and bad things. But they're really important for cycling of carbon, which in long time periods, over a thousand years, affects the atmospheric levels of CO2 and thus our climate So on the long term. So I suppose this has been going on for for centuries and, and possibly millennia um, w with these sort of um, underwater avalanches. Is it possible that this is a mechanism by which organic life spread? Um, you know, if, if they're constantly sort of replenishing the bottom of the sea with organic matter, I mean, do we have any idea how important this previously unknown activity was to the proliferation of life underwater? Very little. So this is really an emerging field. There, there are cases like this event. There was um, one of these avalanches after the Tonga eruption. If you remember that huge eruption on the island of Tonga in the Pacific, that spread a layer of, of sediment that draped the seabed for 100 kilometers, and it basically uh, kind of extinguished most life because it just buried it in sediment. So at one end, they're doing that, and at the other end, they're providing this organic carbon that the seabed life needs. So it's really an emerging area. We haven't measured these events before. We're just getting the first measurements. We're just realizing how big they are. So it's really something for the future. I think it's important. You've spoken about the the Congo Canyon, this um, deep underwater valley that, that um, on on the west coast of Africa, but that's just one w river that fills um, the the ocean. What about other rivers? How how common are these uh, events, and and how regularly do they happen across the globe? You're right. This is the big question. And we're only just beginning to uncover their, their activity by measuring them for the first time. So we measured small events in fjords in Canada, uh, some medium-sized events in Monterey Canyon that's off California. And this is the first time we've measured them in the deep sea. So we've only measured at one place, um, maybe in the world in, in smaller areas, 10 places. So it's really unclear. We know they're active off Taiwan. We know that they're active off the mouth of the Ganges and Brahmaputra. But the future will be doing exactly what you said, 
putting sensors out to measure their size and their frequency and understand what their timing and triggers can tell us. So it's really open. It's just emerging. It's like getting the first few measurements from rivers on land. We're in a scientific field that's that's like getting the first few measurements from a stream and then maybe one from a big river. And now we want to measure more. So where's your next target, Peter? Um, is it is it somewhere completely different? Is, is it Taiwan? Where do you want to measure next? We are working off Taiwan because these flows break cables there. But the place we'd really like to go is the biggest of all the systems. There's an underwater avalanche system that starts at the mouth of the Ganges and the Brahmaputra rivers, and it goes for about 4,000 kilometres beyond the tip of India, longer than India. It's the biggest accumulation of sand and mud on our planet, and we'd really like to know how it works. Um, It's a ridiculous system. It's probably got the longest channel on our planet that's longer than the Nile or Amazon rivers, but we haven't mapped it yet. Wow. We want to go for the biggest of them because that has the most importance for carbon and other things. You know, they say that, you know, that we're spending a lot of money exploring space, but so much of what's underwater is is yet to be explored. And I think there's pretty much proof of that. And finally, Peter, we know that um, earthquakes uh, underwater and and on land can cause tsunamis. Do we have an idea of the effect of this enormous riptide at the very bottom of the of the ocean floor? What sort of effect it has on currents or water movement um, uh, at the surface? It's a good question. Again, the Congo event didn't create a tsunami. And these avalanches of sediment, they mix with seawater. They're relatively dilute. They're not like a slab, a a classical landslide. So they're not very good at producing tsunamis. But uh, landslides that do produce tsunamis, so big failures of the seabed, will kind of disaggregate and form one of these avalanches. We call it a turbidity current. So they may be actually a record of the landslides that, that actually can create tsunamis. No, so it's rather the other way around, is it? So that, that, that a tsunami or, or a landslide might start kick one of these off rather than uh, these having any effect on, on, on increase of water current at the surface. Exactly. So the landslides kick one of these off uh, and they may be the record of the landslide that you can then use. Underwater landslides can be huge. They can be orders of magnitude bigger than anything on land. So there's a landslide off the coast of Norway, which has a volume of 3,000 cubic kilometers. It probably happened over a few hours, 8,000 years ago. It's bigger than the biggest landslide on land in the last three or 400,000 years, and it's far bigger. So these underwater landslides are also fascinating. Wow, that is so cool. And as I say, you know, I tend to think of the water as a, a still and peaceful place, particularly if I ever get the chance to go scuba diving, which after two kids and busy life, it's, it's pretty rare these days. Uh, but I'll be looking at it completely different next time I'm, I'm in the water. Um, brilliant to speak with you. Professor Peter Tolling is from the University of Durham. Peter, thanks for your time. Hey, thanks, Jonathan. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk.